Hi, I'm Vincent Andrasani, and this is episode 14 of The Place of Sound. Thanks very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks also to those who've been following along through the first few episodes of the show. For those who are listening for the first time, The Place of Sound is a show that explores the theme of space, or the social geography, using sound and listening. We do so through a variety of audio media production formats, so you can expect to do a few different types of listening in a single show. Episodes consist of what we refer to as audio portraits, or oral history-style interviews that explore the topic of home. Soundscape compositions, which use everyday sounds to communicate the personal and social significance of a given place. And we typically end the episode with a short documentary-style piece that, over recent months, has explored the topic of social isolation, something we know all too well as a result of our lockdown experiences. These are the types of projects that you can expect to hear on The Place of Sound, and all of them are produced by students here at Carleton University. They're what gets produced in comms 4501, Digital Media Production, which is a fourth year workshop course in the Communication and Media Studies program. The last episode, episode 13, was guest produced by Carleton University MA student, Sammy Holmes. Sammy's been working on a project titled Sounds of COVID, which consists in part of an archive of sounds that she's assembled, capturing some of the many sounds that have characterized the pandemic experience. In it, Sammy's included both her own recordings, as well as the recordings of others in her close social circle. And these recordings are what she shared with us in that episode. In this episode, we'll listen to more student projects produced in my digital media workshop. But before we do that, we'll pause for a quick announcement by Omer Ongun. Omer is the spouse of Jihan Erdal, a sociology PhD student here at Carleton University, who's been detained in Istanbul since the fall of 2020. Omer's got an important message about Jihan and he shares information about how you might get involved to help bring him back to Ottawa. Hi, my name is Omar, and I am Jihan Ardal's spouse. Jihan Ardal is a sociology PhD student at Carleton University, an award-winning youth researcher, peace and LGBTI plus activist. Jihan was arrested in Istanbul in September 2020 while he was conducting his research. His arrest was linked to two social media posts made seven years ago calling to protest the Turkish government's failure to protect Kurds against ISIS massacre attempt in northern Syria. 2,500 academics and 30 international organizations, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, released solidarity statements for Jihan. European Parliament condemned Jihan's detention and the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention made inquiries to Turkey. Today in Turkey, thousands of students, journalists and intellectuals are unjustly in prison. Like other dissidents behind bars, Jihan is arbitrarily and unfairly detained. Help 
us, free Jihan Erdal and bring him back to his home in Ottawa, visit freejihanerdal.com and follow Free Jihan Erdal on Twitter. As Omer mentioned, if you're interested in learning more about Jihan's present status and what you can do to help out, be sure to check out the Free Jihan Erdal account on Twitter and the corresponding website. to the projects. In this episode, we'll listen to a couple of soundscape compositions and an audio documentary, three projects in total. The first project is a soundscape composition by Riley Dunn's titled Intimately Traversing a Space of Agony. The piece is a candid look at a very intimate moment in Riley's life where he revisits a meaningful space and describes why it's so significant to him. The second piece is by Kit Chalkley, titled Consumed by Remembering, and is an exploration of a family recipe. In it, Kit takes listeners across borders and through time, describing the role of this recipe in their family's collective memory for chicken paprikash. And the third and final project is a documentary-style piece by Michelle Gatobu titled Self-Preservation. The piece is a thoughtful meditation on the shortcomings of the healthcare system, and in particular, how racialized populations are disproportionately affected and disproportionately serviced by it. Okay, let's begin with Riley's composition, which is also part of the featured work section on the Place of Sound website. So head over to theplaceofsound.ca if you are interested in having a look at the corresponding photos and writing associated with it. Riley, over to you. Hey CKCU, it's Riley Dunst here again. I hope you're all doing well, and today I'm bringing you a soundscape composition titled Intimately Traversing, A Space of Agony. In this audio, you'll hear myself exploring Rideau River on the edge of the Carleton University campus, a space I sought comfort during the most difficult moment of my life. I've captured a wide variety of sounds, though with a particular focus for the different acoustic levels of intensity of water. Coupled with these sounds is a personal narration where I explain the importance of this place in the past and present for me. Without further ado, here it is. I hope you enjoy. When I first moved here to Ottawa in 2017, my sole purpose was to begin my journey of working towards a university degree. I didn't have much meaning here in Ottawa other than being here for school and living away from home for the first time. But the most meaningful moment in my life happened while I was here in Ottawa. And it was the night I found out you were gone. On that night, I walked down to the river on the edge of campus, seeking complete solitude. I've always been drawn to the sounds of water, 
whether they be from environmental spaces, from a raining showerhead, or even running through pipes. These sounds of water bring me a feeling of comfort in which I can't describe. They always have. That night, my mind was crashing with thoughts and feelings in which I can't remember. All that could be heard was the river. And sounds to remind myself that I'm not in the midst of a nightmare. My experience with this space has been quite limited. I was only there to numb the pain and the agonizing thought of never seeing you again. Now that I've returned almost three years later, it's time I intimately explore this place as it holds so much meaning to me. Is someone there? shall enter on my own terms. I've entered a new realm of sonic perception. Calmness brings me an undescribable level of comfort. And hearing the water negotiate its space around other objects soothes my soul. that time of year where spring is near. The temperature is slowly rising, earthy crunch is revealed, and muddy puddles are plentiful. To truly connect oneself with this space's sounds that are dominated by the roar, sometimes you have to be willing to take risks to capture the intimate sounds that only exist in the presence of an active ear. With a persistent eye, find the spaces where sound is perceived anomalous. But as 
I've made my way upstream, I've reached the apex of the roar. And I feel like I am where I was three years ago. My thoughts were just a mere reflection of the river's continuous crash. But I'm at ease with this space now. And to make my presence known, I indulge into its calmness. The agony doesn't fade, but intimately traversing this space has brought me so much closer to you. The next piece is called Consumed by Remembering by Kit Chalkley. In it, Kit brings the listening audience along with them as they cook from a family recipe. But the piece is about much more than enacting a recipe alone. Kit problematizes everything that goes into building a recipe, from where the raw ingredients are sourced, to the mobility of ideas, people, and practices through time and across borders. It's an incredibly thoughtful piece that unpacks the question, what does it mean to prepare a family recipe? It's a snowy February day in Ottawa, and I've just received an email from my father. I open it, and inside is a short, typed-up document. It reads, Chicken thighs, boneless, 13 to 15. White onions, large, 3. Garlic cloves, 7. Tomatoes, vine, pack of 4. This is my dad's personal recipe for chicken paprikash, a comforting meal we cook together every Christmas. Although it wasn't through an email, dad received the recipe in a similar way from his mother, She immigrated to Canada as a refugee during the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, and although she left her family behind in Hungary, this recipe is one thing that came with her. This story focuses on sound to capture the way this specific recipe has traveled across borders and through time, and its interactions with other places, beings, and things in this journey. It has moved from my grandmother's kitchen in Hungary to her kitchen in Montreal, to my father's in Trenton, and now to my own in Ottawa. The increased globalization of agriculture has transformed it from a locally sourced specialty to a meal with ingredients that come from all around the world. This recipe is an audio tour guide across time and space that upon closer examination reveals some of the intricate interweavings of our globalized world. My first stop on this tour is my local grocer. I grab a cart and make my way through the store, a loud crowded place mediated by overly happy pop music. Shamefully, this grocer is the multinational conglomerate Walmart, a retail chain known for its anti-union policies, unfair foreign product sourcing, and poor working conditions. But it's on my bus route and it's in my price range. I collect the ingredients listed in the email. Chicken from Canada, white onions from the United States, garlic from China, vine tomatoes and red peppers from Mexico. They have all traveled a long way to congregate here, some from overseas and across large land masses. I think about the water, sunlight, and manual labor required to grow this produce, and the cargo trucks and ships required to bring them to Ottawa. Once home in my kitchen, I record the process of organizing my ingredients. I'm hyper aware of the sounds they make and where they come from. Mostly plastic bags, styrofoam, cellophane, and other non-biodegradable packaging. They're noisy. Their pollution of my cooking soundscape mirrors the pollution of our environment. I throw them in the garbage to get them out of my way, but I know that everlasting plastic can only be moved out of the way and into someone else's and never really removed. 
I think of the Canada-Philippines waste dispute that took place over the past five years, where the Philippine president nearly declared war on Canada for us shipping our garbage to their shores. The garbage has since shipped back at the cost of over a million dollars. I take my garbage out through my apartment's garbage chute. I'm not sure where it ends up. I turn to my dad's recipe. He writes, mince onion and garlic in food processor. I don't own a food processor, so I do my best to chop the onion and garlic by hand. I imagine that this is what my grandmother did back in the day. Unlike my dad's food processor, my grandmother's chopping probably sounded the exact same as what I'm doing now. The transformation of this recipe is not linear, but spiraling, transforming away from its first iteration and then coming back in some aspects. I simmer the red pepper and tomatoes with the onion and garlic. While my dad received this recipe from his mom, he has also combined it with other versions he's found online over the years. Just like the network of transportation, infrastructure, and business management that brought all the ingredients together from around the world, this recipe is also influenced by people worldwide, connected by online networks of information. It's also influenced by changes in local nodes of these networks too. Each year, my dad adjusts the recipe in an effort to make it better than the last. The date stamp on the recipe he shares with me reads, updated the 25th of December, 2019. A key change is reflected in the recipe's call for gluten-free flour, an adjustment my father made for my celiac partner who joined us for Christmas this past year. The movement of this recipe from a Hungarian context in the 1940s and 50s to a Canadian one in 2020 has exposed it to the influence of networks of family, nationality, technology, and global agriculture and industry. After a few hours of cooking, my chicken paprikash is complete. It doesn't taste exactly like my dad's version, but it's pretty close and I like it all the same. Maybe the change is because of my own additions to the recipe. My dad's recipe finishes with an instruction marked by his dry humor. Consume by remembering to savor the delicious flavors of the cooked from scratch sauce and delightful tenderness of the chicken. Perhaps I'll send him back my own version. It might read, Consume by remembering to savor the connections between Hungarian Revolution, Mexican farmers, cargo ships, atemporal plastic, online communication, and family transformation in the delicious flavors of cooked from scratch sauce and delightful tenderness of the chicken. This podcast is an outpost of expression about what health and wellness means to me as a Black woman. Lockdown has given me more time to take care of myself with my morning commute being replaced by self-care rituals such as meditation, an extended skincare routine, and most importantly, time to myself. However, lockdown has also made me reckon with the issues surrounding the health and wellness industry, specifically the racial discrimination within it. From wellness brands to healthcare institutions, the issue of race and discrimination remains prevalent throughout. Therefore, this podcast is a sonic journal entry discussing what I thought self-care was and what I now understand it to be. Ottawa reported 41 cases of... I have loved you ever since I've known you, Joe. I- Beginning of lockdown consisted of routinely checking the news, binging television shows, and watching every Timothy Chalamet movie I possibly could to distract myself. In a time of what I thought was momentary pause, life had somewhat slowed down and I was eager to use my newfound time to indulge in some much needed quote-unquote self-care. My love for tea grew as I no longer spent most of my days outside and could consume copious amounts without needing to pay each time, but so did the time I spent on the internet and it became clear to me through social media 
that the wellness aesthetic was going to be the reigning theme of isolation. I increasingly began to see wellness brands emerging on my feed, the most notable being Sporty and Rich by Calgary native Emily Oberg. Attracted to the brand's vintage and retro aesthetic, with content ranging from recipes to workout videos that reminded me of the VHS fitness tapes of the 80s and 90s, I know you know the ones I'm talking about. It was safe to say that Oberg achieved her goal of building a strong visual brand identity that resonated with thousands of users, including myself. However, after following Sporty and Rich for some time, I was disappointed to discover the lack of sportsmanship and elitist attitudes surrounding the brand. In June of 2020, the Sporty and Rich Wellness Club shared a post outlining a cost comparison between healthy and fast foods, urging their 40,000 followers to, and I quote, stop making excuses because being healthy isn't just for the privileged. However, in a time of increasing uncertainty, where unemployment rates have risen and in turn, food insecurity as well, the post came off entirely tone deaf. It is also important to note that black and brown communities are disproportionately affected by issues surrounding food insecurity because neighborhoods with people of color are more likely to have food deserts due to years of structural racism. This is not to cancel Oberg, but to highlight the ways in which her understanding of wellness is a reflection of the structural failures committed against marginalized communities. The height of the pandemic was accompanied by rallying cries around the globe protesting against the murder of George Floyd by officer Derek Chauvin. Floyd was one of the 241 black people shot to death by a police officer in the United States during 2021 alone, and once again highlighted the prevalence of anti-blackness not just in America, but around the world. In response, Users across social media began sharing their experiences with racism, with many occurring in the hospitals. So I've been struggling with chronic back pain for like years, like seven years, eight years. And I went to the doctor, I got diagnosed with scoliosis. And then I just kept having back pain. So I went back and I was like, hey, you know, I've been having back pain like literally every single day. And they were just like, oh, uh, scoliosis just doesn't cause back pains. We just don't really know why you're in pain, you know, which is makes sense. But they just didn't do anything about it. And to this day, I'm still trying to find a doctor who will help me with that. I was in the hospital for knee pain. I tried to treat it at home. And then I went to the Ajax hospital. And they told me nothing was wrong with it, even though there was something clearly wrong with it because I barely, I couldn't really walk. And they didn't want to give me pain medicine for it. The most they gave me was an Advil. And then I was sent back home. And then literally the next day, because my pain was still so bad, I went to the kids hospital. And they gave me fentanyl, so big difference. Instances like the ones previously described by my best friends where their pain was dismissed by healthcare professionals are shared experiences among Black Indigenous people of color, especially Black women, due to the implicit biases borne out the lack of understanding about how illness may affect Black people differently, as well as the misconception that Black people have thicker skin.
This is a result of an education system that has failed to include knowledge of black bodies into their curriculum, as well as an experiment conducted during the 19th century by plantation owner and physician Thomas Hamilton, who, and I quote from an article written by the American talk show Today, regularly tortured an enslaved black man named John Brown, creating blisters all over his body in an effort to prove black skin went deeper than white skin. Historically, we have been and continue to be discriminated against due to the color of our skin. Therefore, in a time where the health and wellness of individuals are increasingly vulnerable due to a global pandemic and black people are dying in the hands of institutions sworn to protect them, it is clear that as a black person, it is difficult to feel safe, let alone well. The goal I set to invest in myself and prioritize self-care proved to be more tumultuous than I anticipated. The meditations I tried to do each morning were clouded with anger for the lives being lost while protesting against the very brutality they were experiencing. And for the first time, I was learning how to take care of my natural hair after years of permanent because growing up in Asia, I didn't have access to the products needed to make it manageable otherwise. I wasn't able to take care of myself in the same way I'd see girls on wellness pages do, and I was frustrated. Surya Nayak once said that the idea and habit of caring for myself slash ourselves is a double bind in a world where the discourse of self-care is a multi-billion pound industry, whilst black women continue to be made ill by their intersectional experiences of racism. That is to say that prioritizing wellness as a black woman comes with experiences of exclusion by brands similar to Oberg's, as well as discrimination by government establishments. Essentially, the contemporary modes of self-care that comprise the health and wellness industries cause black bodies to experience racism on all levels, from social to institutional. That is why Audre Lorde proclaimed that caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. Therefore, every minute I spend on my skincare routine is an act of political warfare against a society who's deemed the color of my skin a reasonable merit for why I'm not worthy to be in the same room and hold the same positions as my non-black counterparts socially, politically, and economically. Every new hairstyle I learn is an act of political warfare against a society who deems our hair unkempt but profits off the appropriation of the exact same styles. And every meditation I practice is an act of political warfare against the colonial institutions that suppress my ancestral spirituality. While doing your skincare, hair, and meditating may be hobbies used during isolation to unwind and pass the time, they are important acts of self-care and most importantly, as a black woman, self-preservation. Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode of The Place of Sound. But before I sign off, a couple of quick notes. The first is about the new featured work section on The Place of Sound website. It's a blog that presents some of the individual projects that you'll hear or have heard on this show. 
On the site, you're of course able to play the audio work itself, but you can also see some of the original photos and the writing that students produce to go along with the audio. Since you can't read that writing or see those photos on the radio show, this is a great way to access it. So check that out in the blog section on theplaceofsound.ca. And the second note is that we've now put together enough episodes that there's a bit of an archive emerging. To listen back to previous episodes, you can find them in two places, on ckcufm.com or on the website at theplaceofsound.ca. But in the meantime, keep your ear out for upcoming episodes, which air on CKCU Radio every other Monday at 6.30pm. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Place of Sound.